Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Nancy McDonald Reuter is a marketing and brand expert. She started her 25-year career at the legendary Leo Burnett Company. In 2002, she founded her own marketing firm, Noetic Consultants. The list of clients that Nancy has helped includes some of the biggest names. GM, Nike, SC Johnson, Pepsi, United Way, the Mayo Clinic, Samsung, Sony, and many, many more. Nancy is also the author of Jack and Jill Went Up the Hill, How Senior Marketers Scale the Heights Through Art and Science. Nancy, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Really happy to have you. So I was very intrigued by your book, which is terrific. Talk about the process of writing this. Why did you write this particular book? Yes, so this particular book was really first and foremost about giving back to the community of marketers who really have been so good to me over all the years from so many of the companies that you mentioned. So I wanted to have a way of being able to give them a platform. Uh, So I began with a body of research by interviewing so many of those senior leaders. I also saw that with the marketplace getting more and more complex and frankly difficult, so many of these people who were senior marketers that I was keeping company with were excelling in this marketplace, not just surviving, but actually thriving in the marketplace. And I wanted to unpack that a bit and understand what that was about, what their ingredients for success were, so that I could then share that back with others. The most surprising thing about the book, and I'm curious as to whether this surprised you, you wrote this book for marketers. But what you end up with is a book that has really incredible advice for anybody, no matter their career path. Was that a surprise to you? Yes, it was. (laughs) It was not what I thought was going to happen. And I only realized that that was the situation out of the feedback that I have gotten since the book has been published. Many people, for example, who are junior marketers have found it to be very helpful, but I've also had a lot of non-marketers read it and pop up and tell me how it's been a help to them. If you look on Amazon at some of the reviews, you see that really mixed in there. For example, I have one uh, colleague who is a civil engineer, and in his review and in our conversations, he talks about how applicable it is to the work that he does. He's obviously very science Sided, uh-huh. uh, science strong, and so his ability to kind of unpack that in his frame of work, he said, was super helpful. So that was really a big surprise to me, a delightful surprise that it has broader applicability. I literally wrote the book about senior marketers for senior marketers, and I did not anticipate that it was going to have value beyond that. I hoped that it would have value for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it spans beyond that is really great. Yeah, it's terrific. Well, since Many of the folks uh, who are listening to this podcast perhaps are not marketers. I'm sure some of them are. Let's talk about some of the major takeaways or the feedback that you've gotten of this advice, this perspective that really is applicable regardless of career path or trajectory. Mm -hmm, Sure. 
Many aspects. Uh, so key would be uh, resilience would be one of the biggest things. Uh, people talking about uh, the importance of really being able to pick yourself up time and again and try, try again. In fact, the title was really inspired and all about that. So I refer to the marketers that the book was about as Jacks and Jills. And we all know the old nursery rhyme, Jack and Jill went up the hill. However, they tumble down. (laughs) And the thing about these senior marketers is that they do tumble because they're they're pushing and stretching and innovating and working to grow these brands. And, and by the nature of that, by the nature of innovating, you have to be ready to have things not succeed. But they don't look at it as failure. They don't, they don't think about it that way. They think about it as learning. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being resilient to you know, work to scale the heights, know that they're going to tumble, pick themselves right back up scale again is really what it's all about. And inherent in that is learning, leaning into learning, having an inherent curiosity, and letting that be your driver. It's not about being correct. It's about leaning into learning and expanding your horizons. Yeah. You did not set out to write a gender-specific book. This is a book that is applicable for men and women. But through the process, you uncovered some important, some important gender differences, let's say. Let's talk a bit about the differences that you saw between men versus women and how they handled certain obstacles. Yes, it, that's exactly right. It was not a goal, but it was something that did crop up in the interviews that I did. And, and the key difference is that women tend to be hard on themselves. I'm not saying men aren't, but women tend to be particularly hard on themselves and have a lot of difficulty taking credit for successes, have a lot of difficulty taking even praise of any kind. And I believe that that's closely tied to this need or pressure that we put on ourselves as women to have to be good at everything. So we need to excel in our careers. We need to be great in our home and family lives. We need to be showing up with our extended family and being hosts in our home and great cooks and great athletes. And, you know, you can look at the list and how could you possibly do all those things? So we always have that report card on our minds. And in the business world, as much as women have risen through the ranks, there's still this tendency to have a lot of self-criticism. And so that's something that a lot of the Jills talked about. Did they talk about or provide specific advice for how you deal with that criticism? Or maybe I should turn it to you and say, what is your advice when you find yourself suffering from, you know, holding yourself to such a high standard that's not attainable to really internalizing criticism or, or setback? What's your advice from for recovering from that? Yeah, and one of the biggest risks is burnout, really, um, or or even just a disharmony with who you authentically are. So the number one thing that I found, and several Jills talked about this as well, is a need to really identify who you authentically are and want to be, and try not to put whatever expectations you think others have for you on your plate, and try to live up to that. Because there is an inherent disharmony with that. And with time, if you're trying to knock yourself out, trying to be something else that you think someone wants you to be, uh, particularly in the business world as you're striving, you're really going to create a lot of internal conflict and and take yourself to a place that's, that's just going to be more and more uncomfortable. So recognizing that issue is really the biggest part of it and trying to determine 
who you authentically want to be and take yourself out of trying to be in somebody else's report card. For me, one of the big shifts um, that really helped me with that was that when I moved from Leo Burnett to running my own company, which was not an overt choice, really. I was very happy at Leo Burnett, but I made a lifestyle move to live in the D.C. area. And so I did commute it for a little while, and then I, I needed to you know break ties. But one of the things that happened is it took me out of a hierarchy. Mm. So I no longer was trying to rise through the ranks of a larger corporation, and I more was able to paint my own canvas. And that helped me a lot in terms of figuring out who I authentically wanted to be in my career. Yeah, that's so interesting. Grit is a big component that comes up, or a big topic that I should say that comes up in the book. Why is grit so important? So grit really is about having that ability to dig deep when you need to dig deep. So I don't uh, separate grit and perseverance and resilience. I kind of pull them all together. And a big part of that is, you know, you're going to you're going to take your tumbles, but are you able to pick yourself back up with enthusiasm instead of going into a burnout mode or a victim mode or whatever, you know, pessimistic mode. Um, And so in order to do that, one needs to fill one's reservoir. So you have to find the ways that you can fill your reservoir back up because we are depleting it every time we strive. So a lot of Jackson Jill's talked about various ways that they do that. The primary one being looking at it as learning, not looking at it as failure. Uh, for me personally, there's a lot of things that I do in my life to fill that that bucket. Um, I do a lot of yoga, I meditate, I walk my dog, I listen to music, I spend time with friends. You know, I do things that help fill me back up mm-hmm. so that I have what I need to move on and thrive, right? Not not just gut it out. So grit is really about understanding that the human condition is such that we do have limits. And in order to respect those limits and be able to excel beyond our wildest dreams, we have to have a respect for when we need to fill our reservoir again. Yeah. What about the role of passion? You're going to find yourself working on various projects. Some are going to light you up inside and some are not. How do you balance that, you know, between the projects that you're really enthusiastic about and the ones that really don't and Mm -hmm. that role of passion as it relates to your work? Yeah, I think passion is the thing that gets you through when you're having those moments. So a great example is the writing of the book. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing the book, uh, there were certain parts of it that were fantastic. I love doing the research, for example. Then other parts, not so good. And that's where passion really comes in. So at one point, I had writer's block when I kind of couldn't get off the dime. I was a few chapters in. That was a really tough period. And the last mile of it of trying to get the book proofread over and over, I did not enjoy that part of things. So that's where passion comes in. Because if you make this firm commitment and you really, really, really want to accomplish something, when you're having those difficult moments and it's not so fun, that's actually what gets you through. I want to give you another quick example. Um, Recently, I had the opportunity to give a talk that was a TED-style format. It wasn't a TED Talk, but it was at an Enterprising Women conference. And I needed to speak for eight minutes, not a second more. They were timing us no notes, and I had to be completely scripted and hit my mark on on every word, every phrase. 
I had to practice in a completely different way. I'd never done that format before. Practiced, 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 and had a coach and the whole thing. When it came time to go to Florida to give this speech, I was ill. I had a fever. I had a sinus infection. I felt terrible. And by all rights, I could have, maybe I should have canceled. (laughs) I was not going to miss this thing. I had prepared, and I was going to get up there and do it. And the morning of, I, until I was done and then I felt terrible again, I was great. I, I got up there, I focused, I hit my mark. I then had to go to bed. I had to go back to my hotel room and go to bed. So that's passion to me. So prepare, right? Prepare, prepare. But then really having it in your heart that this is something I really want to do and nothing's going to get in my way to getting it done. And I think those moments are some of the most rewarding things we can have. Yeah. How do you, can you dig deeper on how you define what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you know what that passion is? Which maybe sounds like a strange question, but how do you know? Yeah. One of the th- key things I think is when you what I would call lose time. So when you're doing something and you you just lose track of time because it's so inherently interesting to you and you also feel a certain joy. So one of the things that I'm very passionate about is the training side of our uh, consultancy. So we are brand strategists, we're practitioners, and we're trainers. And when I'm training people and I'm in the room, you know, with 30 or so people and we're digging in on things and I see skills dropping in for people, I feel a certain joy and I really am fully present in that moment, not worried about what's coming next or what time it really is. Obviously, I have to track the time. But so I think that those kinds of things are when you really know that you've got passion. And I think it's a, a try and learn because you don't really know how you're going to feel about something until you try it. Yeah, that whole notion of flow. Yes, right? There's flow, there's been exactly. That concept of really getting in the moment mm-hmm. and just going with it, losing all track of time. Mm-hmm. You have a thriving consulting business. When you look at hiring talent, how do you think about grit as it relates to the talent that you're hiring? How do you how do you know if a person has grit? Yeah, it's a great question because if you don't have people with grit and you find that out the hard way, it's probably going to be a bad fit and it's going to be difficult for them and it's going to be difficult for you as the as the employer. In our company, we have seven values. We call them the noetic values. And while none of them use the word grit, I think several of them really get at that aspect. For example, one of them is setting the bar high. Another one is collaborating without egos. Another one is dynamic positivity. So these are things we talk about all the time and we bring into our work all the time. So when we're interviewing people, both when we're talking to them and when we talk to their references, we talk about the values, we give examples of what val- the values look like in terms of behaviors and what the anti-value would look like. We look for how much that resonates. We look for them to give us examples of ways in which they've shown those things in their life. And we do the same thing with references. And that's really how we get to fit. But I do think that the at the bottom line, it really is about having that ability to have resilience. Our work is well, I think, super interesting, but it also requires a lot of juggling. Um, It does require setting that bar high, a lot of um, 
grace under pressure because we're dealing with very senior people who have very significant challenges that we're trying to help them with. So if we don't have someone who has that level of grit and resilience in them and passion to go with it, they're likely not only going to not be successful, but they won't be happy. And and we really want people who are going to thrive with us. Yeah. Do you have advice for the prospective job seeker for how they can best illustrate that notion of grit and passion? I think the more um, people who are seeking those jobs, the more they can have anecdotes, examples ready to talk about how they've exemplified these things. And it can be big or small. It doesn't have to be something huge, but making it really tangible. And I think that works on two levels. First of all, it gives evidence to the person who's listening to you, uh, but it also gives tangibility. So when we sit and we're trying to have dialogue with someone we don't know that well yet, and we're trying to make this big decision, tangibility really helps us understand what it might actually be like because it paints a picture and helps you set yourself apart. Yeah. What about client selection? Ever run into situations where the client's values or their employees' values don't align with your values mm-hmm. as an organization? And what do you do under those circumstances? Yeah. Not very often. Uh, But one of the things we do right up front is we have um, a bit of a filter to determine whether or not we're going to take on an initiative. Um, So we have a list of questions um, that we walk ourselves through, and part of that is, do we align in terms of goals and values? Now, obviously, at that point, you have limited information. Beyond that, I've run into very few instances where I have ever felt that there's a real misalignment. Um, But the couple times that I've had, I've sat down with the most senior person. For example, I had a client who I'd worked with many times in many different capacities who had a person on his team that I really felt was sabotaging um, and I was quite distressed on his behalf about you know what was going on with this person. Mm-hmm. However, when I sat him down to talk to him about it, he gave me a big smile and he said, "Oh, Nancy, I know." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I'm working on that, but it, but it's the long game, and here are some reasons why you know we're gonna we're gonna leave it as it is for now." And I was so relieved that yeah. I wasn't telling him something new. So it's it's rare that that happens. We've been really fortunate in that regard. But there have been a few things that have come along where we've gone through our, you know, checklist at the beginning and said, you know what, this this just doesn't align with, you know, how we think about things. We had one recently, very well-known brand. Um, they didn't seem to believe in in being customer-centric. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but they, they really didn't. They felt like, you know, we know best what our customers are going to want. We really lead with our products. And we very, um, very friendly, but we parted ways because because we lead with customers. So I don't think our methodologies would have worked with them, and we just seem to be philosophically not aligned. So it's rare, but it can happen. Yeah. You have talked about the importance of grit as it relates to raising our children. What advice do you have for instilling that notion of grit in your kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very relevant topic, especially these days, and especially if you're in um, a part of society where there's a lot, you know, we have a lot to to give our kids, which is which is my circumstance and kind of the circumstance in the area where we live. I think it's really important that kids learn from a young age 
how to work hard and and what hard work really is um, that we don't give them everything every advantage and every material thing that we possibly could um, with that we are able to stoke both ambition as well as resilience because if you have to try if you have to apply yourself then you start having to to use these skills and it sort of stokes so um in in our family um kids need to have a job at 15 and believe me my kids do not love that rule and in fact my oldest daughter when i sat her down to tell her that she literally looked at me and said why? I don't understand why <laughs> my friends don't have jobs. And, you know, it's a way of really helping them see what hard work is about and really understanding that the work that I put in can really get me rewards and can help me see what I'm made of and I have to strive. And sure, it's uncomfortable and it's not always fun. And those early on jobs, you know, usually are fairly manual labor. And, and that's really the beauty of it. And that was instilled by, by my parents, my dad especially. And so I've, you know, tried to carry that on because I really do think that um, we, we serve our children best by helping them understand how to be resilient and how to make their way in the world. Given your experience in the field, what is the biggest, I and mean, there's been so much change, we could spend this podcast and many, many more talking about all the ways in which the world has changed from a marketing perspective, but what about the biggest mistake that you oftentimes see clients make as it relates to the new environment that they're mm-hmm, operating mm-hmm. in? Right. So this new environment, I mean, it's almost hard to even talk about because it's so fundamental and, and per- pervasive. One of the biggest changes that affects our clients in the capacity that we work with them and and leads to that difficulty is the fact that now it is very much a two-way dialogue where it used to be a one-way dialogue with our customers. Mm -hmm. So back in time when we didn't have as many channels and there was no digital, this thing we call digital, marketers were able to figure out who they wanted to reach, what message they had, and they could just push that out into the world and people would purchase or not and there were less choices. Today with the two-way dialogue, the thing that can be very difficult for marketers is to really fully embrace that it is two-way. So a couple things within that. One is they always inherently know their products or services better than they know their customers. That is just the gravitational pull. When you sit inside an organization, you know what you offer better than you know the people you serve. So they have to go out of their way to get to know those customers and stay close to those customers. It doesn't just happen. And so we often call that a product-centric view and really being careful to not sit in your product-centric view, but get to your customer-centric view. So that level of connection is something that I feel like we are talking to clients about almost every day and in some capacity. So there's all different ways we can go about doing that, but really committing to doing that so that you truly are leading with customer, not leading with your product. What about best practices in that regard? How, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, so it depends on what your what your industry is, how hard it might be for you to get that that customer, exposure. If you have a retail environment, we strongly advise, you know, even and especially at the senior level, 
walk the aisles, like really see how people are engaging. If you can get direct access, listen in on the customer service lines, um, whatever means you have of, of being able to hear and see your customers in their organic environment, if you have that kind of access, you should be tapping into it. Sometimes you have to get more clever if you're more at a distance. Obviously, research you know, is a, is a strong aspect that, that we should be tapping into. But there's all kinds of affordable ways and quicker ways as well. Uh, we're very big on social listening, and that's a great way. You know, go and see what is being said about you online. Mm. You know, if you are one that's getting a lot of reviews on Yelp, you know, what's really being said, the good, the bad, the ugly, yeah. um, what's being said about you in social platforms. So whatever exposure you can get, and it's not this one and done. You know, this is something that you have to be looking at over time. Mm. A lot of the Jacks and the Jills in the book talk about different ways that they do that to stay close. Mm-hmm. Your critics and your your supporters have mm-hmm. lots more platforms with which to communicate mm-hmm. with you, whether you are, a, you know, a, a person running a podcast or whether you're a person running a company. Um, how do you distill between the trolls and the constructive critics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And sometimes they can look markedly similar. Yeah. We always talk about really knowing who that audience is that you intend to serve serve them really well and don't worry about the rest so if you really know who the people are so we all we call it leading with your who if you really know who you're serving and what they want or need and you have something that's highly relevant to them those are the people that you need to keep happy and you can't worry about the rest because if you're worrying about everybody then you're really for nobody Seth Godin says you're you're robbing people of their humanity when you do that. You know, you really have to just authentically be about that audience and go deep with them. And then don't worry about the people who think you're either irrelevant or even in some way disagree with you if you're doing a really good job with the people that you serve. Yeah, that's great advice. That's really great advice. So you started Noetic Consulting in 2002 after leaving Leo Burnett. Why why this particular entrepreneurial path? You talk about a lifestyle shift, but talk a little bit more about why about why you picked this path. Yeah, it was initially fairly accidental. So I moved to the D.C. area from Chicago. It was a lifestyle move. I was very happy at Leo Burnett. And had I stayed in that bigger market, perhaps I would have stayed big corporate. When I moved to this area, it was not, especially back then, it was not much of a marketing town, not to say that there weren't any marketing jobs, but I really didn't know quite where I wanted to go. So I took on some project work, uh, and I just was doing that in an in-the-meantime kind of way. And about a year and a half or so in, I knew that my biggest client was going to sunset their work. The global CEO was going to retire. And that work, I had about a six-month runway for that. That was the point at which I really had to contemplate, okay, what am I doing? Is this just the in the meantime, and now I'm going to go back to big corporate, or am I really doing something here? So I really had to contemplate it. It was a bit of a of a you know divergence in the woods there where I had to pick. And I determined that I really was enjoying what I was doing. Um, and that started to help me see all the ways in which it was really positive for me. I really loved the work itself. 
I loved having the direct accountability that it really was, you know, my name on the door, so to speak, for the quality of what I was bringing. I loved the diversity of being able to work with different industries. So there were a lot of things that I really enjoyed. So I, um, at that point, made an overt effort to um, reach out and network further and be sure that I that the business was going to be able to thrive beyond this Bigfoot client that I had sort of had to to get us started. Yeah. Was it scary? No. <laughs> because I didn't really put a pressure on myself to get to a particular milestone at that time. It was not scary in the early years. I think as I've grown it and as the decisions have gotten bigger, the revenue has gotten bigger, I have a team of people that I'm responsible for now there's those scary moments but early on you know at first it was just me and then you know i took on a couple of employees um no it was just it was just fun and interesting yeah because this notion of marketing and branding increasingly applies to us as individuals right it's hard to exist in the world that we live in today without being conscious of what your personal brand is whether that specifically means your brand online or whether that means just the brand that you're presenting to prospective employers or within the organization that you're part of talk a little bit about um, how that's changed and what your best advice is for navigating personal branding today. Yeah, I think it's really important. I've always believed that, you know, personal brand and reputation are really all you have in life. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And at the end of the day, it's really about that core person, which we could call a brand that that you are. So the number one thing that I believe is true for any brand out there in the world, as well as person as brand, is being your authentic self. And being your authentic self is really determining what do I stand for? What am I really about? Same thing for a brand. And then being that, walking that walk and talking that talk over time in every little thing you do and every big thing you do, whether somebody is there to observe you or not. So that authenticity has to go with consistency over time. And if you're doing that with with intention, then I think you're really putting your best foot forward as a personal brand. I think it's very tempting for all of us to follow the current sometimes, you know, especially when we're young, right? We are in social circles. We want to be liked. You know, there's so many things that can pull us into things that may pull us out of being our authentic selves. But again, as we talked about, you know, that disharmony that will develop if you are, you know, you will have that little voice talk to you if you are not being harmonious with who you truly are. So it helps people know how they can rely on you, if they can rely on you, and how they or if they want to align with you. I think for women, oftentimes, it can be very difficult to not worry so much about what others think that we can as a general rule tend to really internalize or uh, what we think the views are of other people what about advice around that Mm -hmm. sort of not worrying so much about what we think others think of us I'm a pleaser by nature so I have struggled with this you know over the years and I probably only like in the last year or so, feel like I've gotten a little bit of a better handle on it. 
to be really honest, I think it can be quite intoxicating in the short run to try to meet somebody else's expectation. And if you feel like you're getting there, you know, that can that can really be kind of alluring. But in the long run, it's just going to be toxic and, and exhausting if exhausting. that's different. Exhausting. If that's different, especially if that's different from who you really are. So one of the things that help, has helped me separate is journaling and really getting clear on, you know, what are my priorities? What am I really about? Especially if I feel in any way pushed in a direction that doesn't feel right to me. How about bouncing back from setback? That also can be a big one. You encounter a big roadblock. Maybe it's a full-on failure. How do you bounce back? What's your advice yeah. for dealing with? Yeah, I think there's no perfect recipe for that, and it's probably you know different for each person. But I can share a little bit about what I have done and, and how I've made my way with that. Um, I would say the two most notable um, difficulties, and if I would call them setbacks, but you know, sort of difficulties I've dealt with in my life was um, the loss of my dad and the loss of my marriage. So each of those happened fairly suddenly, my dad very suddenly. And while, you know, the loss of a parent isn't a failure per se, for me, it was a loss of the anchor in my life. So he was this, you know, steady anchor, source of advice, wise, always there, and then suddenly not. So it was a feeling of being out to sea. And loss of my marriage, divorce is a feeling of failure for for many, certainly it was for me. But also there's just this sense with both of these, they were setbacks because my life was so different upon these things happening. So really trying to get your bearings again. And that's where fear oftentimes come in comes in that that's how it was for me just a lot of fear about I can't really picture how things are going to go now without this aspect or person in my life I don't know what the future holds you know very scary stuff so one of the gifts I I have for whatever reason in my life is that I really am passionate about wanting to feel happy (laughs) I'm not okay with living an unhappy life. That's just not an acceptable thing to me. So that's a big driver for me. So I really had to learn a lot of ways to try to cope and um, bring myself to a happier place. So a lot of the things I mentioned earlier, yoga, meditating, long walks, music, journaling, you know, ways of recentering. But a big part of that is actually sitting with the uncomfortable feelings. So sitting with the fear, as my yoga teacher would say, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And that is a skill that you actually can develop. So one of the exciting things out of the setbacks I've had is really understanding that I can get maybe not good, but better at being uncomfortable. And I can walk up the middle and and have courage because it doesn't mean not feeling afraid. It simply means feeling the fear and going forward anyway. So those are some of the things that that I've used. I also don't want to forget to mention really reaching out and, and taking the support offered by family and friends. I'm not great at doing that. I tend to be the one who's giving advice and supporting other people. And so it was very humbling for me to be in a position where I needed that and and then pushing myself to to do it. 
we need connection as humans. And so that aspect of really being able to lean on others when you're having those moments has been a huge piece of of what that um, recovery from any setback, I think, is about. You can't do it by yourself. I, I can't do it by myself. Yeah. I don't think anyone <laughs> yeah. can. And I, I think that is oftentimes a very gender-specific response mm-hmm. that we as women do try to do it all ourselves. Yeah, I'm that, good. I'm <laughs> fine. <laughs> don't worry about me. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I didn't ask you about the name Noetic Consulting, and I know that you were very thoughtful about coming up with this name. What does it mean? Yeah. So Noetic rhymes with poetic. Sometimes people have trouble pronouncing it. So when I established the company, I wanted a name that would somehow encapsulate what we offer, and I also wanted it to be memorable. I did some research and looked at other firms that were doing similar things, and I was actually struck by how generic many of the names felt. And I was like, "Gosh, like we're in marketing and branding. Like this, this should, you know, there are companies like you know, Total Marketing Solutions, or and if that is somebody's name out there, I apologize. But you know, it just <laughs> it just felt creative. kind of <laughs> vanilla to me. So um, noetic means to think or to know, to have insight. So if I if you, if you said something very beautifully put, I might say, how poetic. And if someone says something very insightful or wise, you could say, and it would be proper grammar to say, how noetic. Now, no one says that, but maybe if you start, we could start something here. Um, so, so to me, that encapsulated what we do for clients. We really help bring them uh, further insight, deeper insight than what they have. That may be because they lack the skill set internally or the bandwidth internally, that ability to get that kind of insight of who their audiences are, how to refine or define their brand. So, you know, various aspects of it, but it's really about bringing them that fresh thinking. Yeah, that's great. One final question. Mm. I ask everyone for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. You've given us amazing advice already, but if you had to distill it down to one thing that's kind of your North Star, what would that be? Mm -hmm. I would go back to the fear-courage thing that we were talking about. So mine would be feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, So I I didn't create that. I think it was Nelson Mandela. (laughs) Actually, it came up with that one. But what that means to me is when I'm nervous, when I'm anxious and worried about something, that means I need to, to lean in and really strive to dig into whatever that thing is. If I don't, I'm going to miss out. I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to get to the next level. So, But there's always the fear factor. So by keeping that high in my mind, you know, feel it, right? Feel it, but do it anyway. I acknowledge that it's uncomfortable and then I'm able to move forward. I think without the acknowledgement, the fear can just be kind of swirling around you and you don't realize the degree that to which it's hindering you. So acknowledge it and then go. Yeah, it's great. Really great. Nancy, thank you so much oh, for thank being you. here. Really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thank you. To learn more about Nancy and Noetic, you can visit our website. There we will include notes and photos from today's visit, as well as links to Nancy's terrific book, called Jack and Jill Went Up the Hill, How Senior Marketers Scale the Heights. We'll also include uh, links to Nancy and to Noetic Consulting. 
And if you're enjoying hearing from the inspiring women on She Said, She Said, women like Nancy, please let us know. Contact us via the website or social media or leave us a review. We love hearing your feedback, especially when it's constructive feedback. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of our growing network of inspiring, insightful women who are leading and having an impact that is positive on our world.